Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 17th of December 2023, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on the ministry of John the Baptist. So, just another eight days to go before Christmas Day. And as I say those words, I sense a shudder from many in this church, including me, at all that needs to get done in that time. So there's food probably still needing to be got. Presents, in all likelihood, still needing to be purchased, particularly for that really awkward person who is always really difficult to get some, something for. And 101 other things, most likely, as well. And just in case you think clergy are way too spiritual than to get caught up in the business of Christmas and distracted from its meaning, think again, because it's a danger for every single one of us. But if we want it to be different this year, if we want our hearts to be in the right place to be ready for Jesus' coming, perhaps starting with the carols by candlelight service this evening, what should we be doing over the next eight days that might make a difference in this regard? What can we be doing to make sure that we're really prepared for the coming of Jesus? Well, this, of course, is where John the Baptist comes in, the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. After the over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the foretelling of John's birth and then his birth itself, and the way that all sorts of things to do with John the Baptist showed that God was doing something new. But this morning, we're looking at Luke's short account of John's ministry. What John did before the ministry of Jesus began and how this can help us to make ready for his coming. And as Luke likes to do, he makes us very clear about the historical context at the time. John's public ministry begins, we're told, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, this man here. Tiberius being the successor to Augustus Caesar, who, of course, had been the Roman emperor when John and Jesus were born. Tiberius had succeeded Augustus around AD 14, so in the 15th year of his reign, takes it to about AD 29. But other things have changed as well. Herod, the wicked king in the Christmas stories, he was long dead, and his kingdom had been divided up. And that's what the map looked like after Herod died. The Romans by this stage had their own governor ruling over Judea, that's the yellow bit at the bottom of that map. And the Romans now had their own governor ruling over that part in uh, a man called Pontius Pilate. So there's Pontius Pilate by this stage, a familiar name, he is the governor of Judea. But some of the land uh, retained being under Herod's sons, less important territories, to be honest. Uh, Herod's son, Herod Antipas, he was tetrarch or a sort of lesser king over the region known as Galilee and also that strip just down uh, to uh, the east of the Jordan, the bits basically that are there in purple. And his brother Philip, who was another son of Herod, he ruled over Ituria and Trachonitis. They're the bits in that map in green. 
So they're the sort of political details that we're given at the time. But the other important thing that we're told, that Luke feels the need to tell us, is that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests in Jerusalem. And even that reference made a significant statement about politics and the state of the world. You see, the Romans had deposed Annas as high priest and they'd replaced him with Caiaphas. But for many Jews, Annas was still the rightful high priest. So why are all these details given to us? Well, it's to make one basic point. Evil still appeared to be in charge. That's what all of these details, one way or another, are showing. Evil still appeared to be in charge. But then things started to change. And they started to change through the appearance of John. John appears, we're told, in the desert, preaching, we're told, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'll say a little bit about the baptism part of that in a moment. But the forgiveness of sins meant that the old era, with all of its problems, was about to give way. About to give way to a new one as the Lord returned to his people, bringing his salvation or rescue. And that could come because the consequences of Israel's sin had been undone. That's what this new era of the forgiveness of sins was all about. The prophet Isaiah had spoken centuries before about someone coming to make straight the paths ahead of that time that God returned to his people. And for the gospel writers, including Luke, that man was John the Baptist. So if we want to experience more of the salvation, more of the rescue that comes from God this Christmas time, if we want to be ready for what God wants to bring into this world through Jesus, what can we take from John the Baptist? What can we take from this man who precisely came in order to prepare the way for Jesus? Well, there are at least three things coming out of that passage that we had read that I think can help us. And the first is this. The first part of what really John says to us is we're not to assume our status before God without repentance. Now I want to be careful the way that I convey this because God does want us to be secure about our standing before him rather than plagued by constant anxiety about this. But security is different from complacency. And the thing that makes them different in terms of our belonging to God is genuine repentance. That's what makes the difference between security and complacency. Genuine repentance. Repentance quite literally means turning around. It means deciding to stop going one way and going instead in another. And the truth is that many of the people that John spoke to were complacent about their status as God's children. Why were they complacent about this? Well, they were the children of Israel, weren't they? They were descended from the father of Israel, Abraham. Abraham was the one to whom God made all those amazing promises about being given a land and a great people, a people more numerous than the stars in the sky. That's why the person who did that painting has put all those stars in the sky behind Abraham. And what that all meant 
was that for those descended from Abraham, they were unlike the dreadful pagans. They were unlike people like Tiberius and Pontius Pilate. They were part of God's chosen people, and that status that they had before God was utterly secure. Not necessarily, John comes to say. He says very directly to the people that were complacent about their status before God, he says these words, don't tell yourselves, people of Israel, that Abraham is your father. Don't tell yourself that you're automatically members of God's family, because God, if he chooses, can make stones into children for Abraham. The true sign, John said, of those who belong to God's family isn't your belonging to a certain tribe or race. It's when you do this. It's when you produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's when you do things that show that you're trying to turn around and walk in God's way. It's when there's stuff to show that you're trying in this regard. And God, John gives a rather scary warning at this point when he says these words. He says the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. When John said those words, he said them directly to those who thought they were part of God's people, come what may. And this was linked to the thing that John was most famous for. You see, baptism was something that existed before John came. It was part of what was used when pagan Gentiles decided that they wanted to become Jews. Pagan Gentiles deciding that they wanted to convert to Judaism would undergo a baptism, probably by being completely submerged in water to symbolise God's washing away of the sin in their lives. But something remarkable now happened to baptism. John, rather shockingly, took this symbol of entry for pagan Gentiles into God's people, this symbol of the washing away of sin, and what John said was that everyone needed it, including those who felt that they were already God's people. Whatever pedigree people might think that they had, John says, uh-uh, you all need baptism. The people of Israel, just as much as pagans like Tiberius and Pontius Pilate, just as much as renegade semi-Jews like Herod Antipas and his brother Philip, they needed to repent and then produce fruit in keeping with repentance and baptism symbolised all of that. And if we want to be ready for the coming of Jesus in eight days' time, will have given some thought into what it means to produce fruits in accordance with repentance. And that involves us asking searching questions about what parts of our life need to change. So is there a part of your life that you know is wrong? Is there an attitude towards someone or something that you know needs attention? Is there a type of behaviour that you know really needs to change, both for your sake and for the sake of others affected by it? 
Now we'll get on to how that can happen in a moment. But for now, what we're talking about is the desire to change. By admitting that there's a problem and being determined to see that change come. If we can spend some time over the next eight days before Christmas Day considering what that might be and being resolved to bring it before God for him to change it, this is all part of producing fruit in keeping with repentance and it is the best possible way that we can make use of this time that's left to us ahead of Christmas Day. But in case we think that repentance is just about vaguely positive statements of intent, John shows us that it's far more practical, far more down-to-earth than that. Repentance can take very concrete forms. Because the second thing that we can learn from John as we prepare for the coming of Jesus is this. True repentance is resolving to use every opportunity that we can to do good and reject evil. John spoke about this when those listening asked him what they could do. They, in response to what John said, they said, well, what can we do about this? They wanted practical help. And John's answers to the people who asked him were very simple. They were very practical. Here are some of the things that John says. John said, look, the man or the woman who've got two tunics, they should share with those who have none. And the one who has more food than they need should do the same. And then some tax collectors, some of those hated people who worked for the Romans and got rich basically on the misery of the people they exploited, some tax collectors came to be baptised by John as well. And they asked John what they should do. And John told them that they shouldn't collect any more than the Romans required of them. Very simple advice. In other words, they shouldn't collect the extra cut that was all part of the incentive that most people had for doing that job. There was no point in becoming ostracised by your community and hated by your own people unless you were getting quite a lot of money out of it. And Jesus tells them not to do that. And then some soldiers, possibly Roman soldiers, perhaps Herod soldiers, given that the part of the, uh, the Jordan where John was baptising was within Herod's territories, some soldiers come and they ask John the same question, what should we do? And John tells them to be content with their pay. Rather than taking the easy and acceptable option of extorting money from people who had no redress about that. Soldiers could march into people's homes and take food and drink and so on without really any accountability. So John's teaching, which is only recorded here in Luke's Gospel, is very simple. In fact, so much so that some biblical scholars have seen Luke as deliberately making John's teaching really banal so that the teaching of Jesus that's coming up in the gospel will shine even more brightly by comparison within it. But that's completely missing the point. John was saying, quite simply and quite directly, that all of us have the opportunity every day and in ways that people might consider very small and inconsequential, all of us have the opportunity every day to pursue good and reject evil. Often, John says, in very small acts of generosity, sharing food, 
or in rejecting small acts of greed. And it's that daily resolve to do good and reject evil in small ways as well as large. It's that that constitutes producing fruit in accordance with repentance. And the application of this will be different for each one of us. But it may be material, it may be financial, like these examples that John gives. Is there a way, for instance, that we could be more generous on a regular basis towards others with what we have? Perhaps more generous in the use of our time or our possessions? Are there ways that we're making money or exploiting people for this that's perfectly legal but ethically wrong? Producing fruit in keeping with repentance is when we go beyond what the law says, when we go beyond with what we can easily get away with and we resolve to stop living in a certain way because we know it grieves God's heart. And more than that, it prevents us being the fully human beings that we were made to be. You see, we must never think that God's um, instructions on how to live are somehow arbitrary, that God just, for whatever reason, wants us to live in a certain way. The reason why God wants us to live in the best possible way is because we become fully human beings when we live that way. When we show love, when we show generosity, when we're outward looking, we become more fully the people that God made us to be. We start reflecting God's image more strongly, and that's what we're made for. Put positively, producing fruit in keeping with repentance is when we resolve to use every opportunity, every day that's available to us, to bring a bit more of God's goodness into this world. Now, we won't always manage it, and God will forgive us when we fail and when we ask for that forgiveness. It's why we have a regular confession. But every day is a fresh opportunity. For those what are sometimes called random acts of love and kindness that represent the repentance that God calls us to. Repentance isn't just contrition for what's gone wrong, although that's an important part of it. Repentance is when we resolve to live in a really positive new way. But of course, that is much easier said than done, isn't it? And that's why John's final point is really important, and it's this. True repentance is recognising the unique power that comes with Jesus. See, after what John the Baptist said and after what he did, there were some who, perhaps understandably, started to wonder whether he himself might be the Messiah, whether John might be the rescuer that Israel was looking for. Now, whether they explicitly asked this or whether John just picked up that that's what they were thinking, he had an answer, and a very straightforward answer, and the answer was no. And John said these words. He said, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. He, John said, will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That was the first thing that John said, and uh, he added details about him being not fit to undo this person's sandals and so on. But then he went on to say these words. He said someone was coming into the world to sort it out 
and get rid of evil with a power that had no previous parallel. That's my summary of that poetic language that he uses there. And of course, John was speaking, as we all know, about Jesus. Comparing the baptism of John with the baptism of Jesus, comparing perhaps our efforts to repent with what God can do for us in Jesus, it's rather like comparing trying to clean a filthy car with a water pistol and cleaning it using the proper detergent and a jet washer. There is absolutely no comparison. And preparing to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas time is all about recognising that we're about to celebrate the coming into this world of the most extraordinary power that has ever entered it. The only power that can change it and can change our lives within it. The only power that can change anything about this world, including our lives, is this. Here. The utterly powerful and transforming power of God's love in that baby placed in a manger. That's the love that came to change the world forever. And that's the love that we can be part of if we're prepared to give Jesus control over our lives. And that love really can live within us and do its work through us. And that is what Christmas is all about. But to be ready to receive that love and to experience the fullness of its power, our hearts need to be open. Our hearts need to be open in repentance, the desire to turn our lives around the direction that God wants them to be in. If that desire is there, if we have the genuine humility to acknowledge that there are major parts of our lives that need to change, and if we're already resolved to do what we can to make that happen, we will be ready for Jesus. We'll be ready for that love to come more fully into our lives with a power that can make things possible for both us and for others through us in ways that we can't imagine. So amidst all the business of the next eight days and all the things that we might feel we need to get done, let's make sure that we use them as well to be ready for Jesus. Let's take time Perhaps if we're planning to come to Carols by Candlelight this evening, some of you won't be able to come to that, but many of you will. What about taking a little bit of time this afternoon just to be still before God and to make it clear that we really do want to repent and be ready to celebrate Jesus' coming? Let's take time to think about what this means. Because if we can do that, will be in a position to be able to be ready to celebrate Jesus' coming because we'll have taken seriously what it means to follow John's teaching when he tells us to produce fruits in accordance with repentance. Let's just pray for a moment. Father God, we do thank you that Christmas is nearly here. But we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be serious 
about producing food in keeping with repentance. Would you direct us to see clearly what within our lives needs to change? Would you give us the will to take those daily opportunities that come to do good and reject evil? Would you lead us to be in the right place to welcome your Son, Jesus Christ, and to experience and have our lives transformed by the amazing power of your love within your Son? We pray this in Jesus' name.